you very much for uh, joining this, uh, this conversation. Um, we have uh, started a new publication, which I, I take it you're aware of. Our most recent issue of Sapir is on the subject of uh, Zionism. We are committed to not just offering uh, diagnostic, uh, uh, kind of a, diagno a diagnosis for, for the issues that confront the Jewish world, but also we're trying to be prescriptive and we are trying to cultivate voices from across uh, the religious and uh, ideological divide to include people who identify on the left and those who identify on the right and uh, everywhere in between and, and, and in other places. And our next issue is devoted entirely to the subject of um, uh, education where you have spent uh, your career as a professor most recently um, at Harvard, uh, Harvard University. You are, I think, uh, easily one of the most uh, well-known and widely, uh, widely respected political philosophers um, of our day. And the book that you wrote two years ago and that continues to get attention and is that really is really the, 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 the uh, uh, central point of our conversation today is your book on the tyranny as uh, as as you put it of, of merit the notion of a meritocracy used uh, not as a term of praise but actually one of um, one of opprobrium uh, even so, I, I just wanted to get uh, to get uh, started with it. I, I'd, I'd ask you to begin in a slightly biographical vein, because my interest is particularly the American Jewish experience. Could you tell us a little bit um, about your parents and grandparents and your and your own uh, upbringing, your own entry into what I guess we call the meritocracy? Yes, but first, let me thank you, Brett, and please call me Michael. Okay. And congratulations on Sapir and for this venture in really a venture in Jewish public education. Uh, it's it's very important, and uh, it's it's an honor to be a part of it. I grew up in uh, near Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm from the Midwest, and. My family uh, was a member of a conservative congregation in Minneapolis. And um, as a kid, I went to uh, Talmud Torah for five years. It was the kind of Talmud Torah in Minneapolis where um, we went five days a week. Uh, a bus would come pick us up from the public school uh, and uh, take us to the Hebrew school afterwards. Uh, so um, it was uh, five days a week for five years from age eight to age 13. And um, that I suppose was a shaping experience along with growing up in, uh, in the Midwest in a place that had a very strong civic sensibility, a confidence that public life and public service could make a difference for the good. I'm talking here about um, Minneapolis, Minnesota generally, which produced more than its fair share of, of uh, public figures on the American my colleague, political. My colleague, Tom Friedman. Yes, well, he and I were in the same Hebrew school. That what I've oh. just described was the St. Louis Park uh, Talmud Torah, and the, he and I were in the same Talmud Torah class, and then later found ourselves uh, together at Brandeis, and after that, uh, at Oxford, so we we go a long way back, um, and then my family moved to uh, to Los Angeles, where I went to high school, to a public high school, Pacific Palisade in the Pacific Palisades, and uh, and then I went to Brandeis as an what, undergraduate. What did your What did your parents do? What did What did their parents do? I, I'm asking this for a specific reason. My father was in business uh, in the. Uh, he distributed uh, records to uh, department stores that sold phonograph records. Um, and my mother taught languages and, and was a homemaker. College educated? Yes, they both were. They both were. And their, 
in both of their cases, my, my grandparents on both sides were immigrants when they were young, when they were very young. So it's a classic uh, Jewish story, not unlike probably many who will uh, watch this, uh, watch this uh, uh, conversation uh, pretty much identical to, to my own, one in which um, merit and effort lead to greater success with every uh, every passing generation. Is that fair to say? Yes. Now, what portion is effort and what portion is to do with cultural circumstances, we can discuss later. But the broad pattern is as you've described it, Brett. So it seems that one, one question I have to begin this conversation is, um, there used to be in the United States, or maybe I'm, uh, I'm, I'm romanticizing history, but at least the, the history that we tell ourselves, is that the meritocracy used to work uh, in the United States, in that there was a correspondence between um, effort uh, and achievement, and that the, uh, that the ladder of social mobility worked, uh, worked for uh, everyone. And then something happened in the last 40, 50 years where that uh, changed fundamentally. And, and I guess my first question is, what was, was the idea of the meritocracy that worked well for our families seemed to be um, reasonably fair? Was that ideal misplaced from the beginning or have, or have things changed? with respect to globalization, the distribution of wealth uh, in the economy, the creation of a prestige economy. It, it, I guess the question is, was the meritocracy a faulty ideal from, from the get-go or, or are we just living in a new world where it seems to uh, not uh, satisfy the needs of a growing number of uh, our fellow citizens? I think there were elements of the meritocracy that seemed to work that depended on factors that we weren't fully um, aware of or appreciative of. I certainly think it's true, as you put it, that developments in the economy, the finance-driven version of global capitalism that we've had in recent decades, the widening inequality, the wage stagnation, the stalled social mobility, I think things have changed. Uh, and we can discuss whether meritocracy as a moral ideal and a philosophical ideal is flawed or defensible. But I, I think it's certainly fair to say that the faith, the traditional American, perhaps the mid-century American faith, that effort and hard work would be rewarded with upward mobility. Um, is no longer true if it ever was. And in particular, I think the idea that the weight, the primary response to the inequality of our day and to the wage stagnation for over half the population over the last four decades, the idea that the answer to that is individual upward mobility through higher education that I think is a mistake. And it's a mistake that the mainstream political parties, uh, Democrats and Republicans alike uh, made um, uh, over, the last, uh, over the last four decades. Let me ask you particularly about this question of education and um, especially um, elite uh, education, because one of the points that you uh, argue very eloquently um, uh, in, in, in your book is that access to elite institutions um, is increasingly driven by uh, not so much one's own talents as right. the socioeconomic position from which you arrive. And I think there's a, there's a head-bursting number in there that 60% or some extraordinary percentage of students in elite universities, I thought it was 60, um, come from what is it, the top 1% of uh, the, the income? Uh, well, not, not quite, it's not that bad, but oh, okay. let me give you, uh, give, give, me, give me, sorry, give me, the, give me the facts. 
uh, a couple of head bursting uh, numbers. First, if, uh, if we look at the most selective 100 to 140 colleges and universities in the United States, we're not here talking only about the Ivy League, but the, the 100 to 140 places um, that, are, that have the most selective admissions policies. The percentage of students in these places from well-off families, top 25%, is 70%. The percentage of students in these places from the bottom, uh, from the bottom quartile is 3%. From the bottom half, only 10%. So the bottom half of the population is uh, only accounts for one in 10 of the students at the most selective colleges and universities. Now, when we get to the Ivy League, despite generous financial aid uh, policies, there are more students in the Ivy League universities whose families come from the top 1% than there are students whose families come from the entire bottom half of the income scale combined. There's another figure in some ways even more striking to me, Brett, that I uh, came across when doing research for the book. And that is about the extent to which um, colleges and universities actually function as engines of upward mobility. We assume that they do. We, we debate what are the fair principles of admission, but we take for granted that going to college is a powerful engine of upward mobility. Some economists uh, recently- Unless you study... get a PhD, but that's a, that's a <laughs> There you go. Um, some a team of economists studied 1,800 colleges and universities in the United States, selective, not selective, public, private. And they asked, what proportion of the students in American colleges and universities arrive from low-income families, bottom fifth, and um, rise as adults to the top fifth. The percentage, 2%, wow. 2%. Now, this isn't because it doesn't help your career prospects to go to, to get a university degree, it does. But it reflects the fact that there are so relatively few young people from low-income families in colleges and universities in America in the first place. Higher education in America functions like an elevator in a building that most people enter on the top floor. So that raises questions about how universities need to recast both their college, their admissions priorities, as well as their pedagogical priorities once, once they're, they're admitted. And we are right now on the eve um, it might happen today, as we speak, um, of uh, the uh, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard uh, case, which uh, must be somewhere on, 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 on your uh, radar. Um, do you take a view of, again, we don't know what, what the decision will be, we'll, we'll find out soon enough. Um, do you take a view of what, what uh, a ruling against Harvard might mean for upward mobility uh, or ruling uh, uh, for Harvard? I mean, how, how, how would a, a decision like that affect the picture that you are describing? Well, since the current picture is not one where there is a, a very high level of upward mobility that results from a college attendance, uh, and I think it's worth pointing out something we often forget, which is that most people, most of our fellow citizens do not have uh, university degrees. Nearly two thirds don't. And this suggests to me that it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition 
of dignified work and a decent life, a college degree that most people don't have. But this gets to the, I think I misplaced political priorities with regard to the role of, of higher education and ways of tackling inequality. But on the issue of affirmative action, which the court is considering, uh, affirmative action has been, I think, uh, an effective tool for broadening the racial and ethnic and gender uh, and geographic diversity of higher education. And that's a good thing. It's an important thing. Uh, and it makes the classroom experience uh, go better. Um, it's not functioned primarily as a, an effective tool of upward mobility with regard to class. And uh, so what will be the impact on mobility uh, if the Supreme Court strikes down uh, the use of affirmative action in admissions? In a way, I think is a side question because affirmative action has not been a policy whose primary aim or primary result right. uh, has been um, upward mobility in terms of class. So would, would a policy of affirmative action that has a much greater stress on class rather than race um, resolve some of the problems with this kind of uh, hard meritocracy hardening into a kind of permanent uh, uh, arist uh, aristocracy? Or is that is that just, you know, are you just solving a, a, a problem that's, that's still too narrow in scope for, for the broader issue that, that, that's being faced? I think we have to deal with class inequalities in a much broader way than relying on higher education uh, alone or primarily as a, as a way of resolving it. Um, and I would not say that we, though, though I'm in favor of affirmative action that takes class background into account, um, I'm also in favor of affirmative action that takes uh, racial and ethnic background into account because these are different dimensions of inequalities that we should be concerned about and, and that are relevant to bringing uh, diverse voices into the classroom. But I think it would be a mistake to think that um, any uh, college admissions policy uh, would be a, a, the primary way of dealing with the inequalities of income and wealth and also of social esteem that have deepened over the last four decades. For that, I think we have to look at the structure of the economy and consider ways of, uh, in our public life and in our public discourse, of focusing less on arming people for meritocratic competition, focus more on making life better for everyone who contributes to the common good through the work they do, the families they raise, the communities they serve, whether or not they have a, a college degree. And it's, it's a further conversation uh, what, uh, what we might do to make that possible. So that's, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you next, because the question of social esteem raises a number of issues. First of all, um, there aren't many institutions one can quick, easily think of in the United States today in the way that there are, say, in, in Germany right, where, where one can acquire social esteem um, without the benefit of um, elite, uh, elite higher education. Community colleges are extremely valuable and important, but they um, aren't part of the prestige, you know, really of the prestige economy. So what are educationally some of the tools we might be able to uh, expand or develop that would um, advance uh, the possibility of um, uh, doing well uh, and gaining social prestige without participating in the meritocracy as we've now devised it. I think that the fundamental challenge, Brad, is to, uh, to question 
and reconfigure the prestige economy, as you've called it, itself. And education is one part, but not the only uh, part of that problem. Uh, broadly speaking, I think we need to reverse the steep hierarchy of prestige in higher education that puts uh, selective and Ivy League colleges and universities at the pinnacle and relegates other forms of learning um, to, to a much lower level of honor and recognition and also of public investment. Um, an economist at Brookings uh, looked at federal support the, the, in the US, federal support for uh, helping students attend higher education um, several years ago, it was $164 billion a year. And the amount the federal government spends on uh, vocational and technical uh, training institutions is 1.1 billion, 164 to 1.1. Now, this reflects the fact that we woefully underinvest in those forms of learning on which the majority of our fellow citizens depend to prepare themselves for the world of work and for that matter of, of citizenship. It's not only um, uh, a financial uh, matter, it also reflects the, uh, the hierarchy of prestige that has flowed to uh, the press to, to the uh, most selective colleges and universities. And we this this is partly uh, there are two problems here. One is that we've neglected uh, funding for community colleges and state colleges and universities and vocational and technical training. That's part of the problem. But the other is that converting, higher education into a sorting machine for a market-driven meritocratic society has corrupted the educational mission of higher education. So the tyranny of merit, as I call it, not only bears down upon those who are left out, it also oppresses the winners and the institutions, I mean, like mine, that can further credentials and define the merit that a market-driven meritocratic society rewards. The credentializing function of higher education has, has begun to crowd out uh, the, the educational function, the intrinsic mission of higher education, which is to cultivate the love of learning, critical thinking, exploration of what's worth caring about and why. So it's corrupting this the, the sorting machine role that we have assigned higher education is, is corrupting of the institutions that on the face of it seem to be its greatest beneficiaries. Let me uh, narrow the discussion down to a Jewish dimension, which is that for generations of American Jews, and we were talking about this at the, at the beginning, um, the ideal of American meritocracy um, was one of the great blessings of the American Jewish community. Uh, not everyone, but uh, probably disproportionately, Jews were able, Jewish parents were able to send uh, their children into um, elite uh, universities, which gave them entry into areas of public uh, and private life legal institutions, investment banking, and so on, that had been closed uh, to them. The Jews did. Meritocracy was very good, uh, you know, to use the term. It was good for the Jews. Um, and many Jews today, uh, I think, are worried about challenges to the meritocracy because they worry that a challenge to the meritocracy itself could uh, effectively diminish um, the quality um, and the long-term prospects of American Jewish life, status, success, uh, even, even security in, in the long-term. So how should um, American Jews today, many of them beneficiaries of the meritocracy, think about what you just described as 
not only the, 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 the corrupting aspects that it has on society at large, but even the corrupting aspects it has on its presumptive beneficiaries. I think that we uh, should begin by noticing, this goes back to the first part of our conversation, Brett, uh, some of the uh, preconditions of the meritocratic uh, success, the, uh, the upward mobility that uh, American, uh, that American Jews enjoyed uh, during the, you know, the, uh, the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. It's true, there is a dark backstory to this, which is that the Ivy League schools um, earlier in the century um, either didn't admit Jews or had restrictions on the number of Jews. And so meritocracy, admission by, which really meant admission by test scores, um, seemed like a liberating promise. It seemed like a fair alternative to a system of nepotism and prejudice and uh, uh, that excluded Jews uh, and other uh, immigrant, uh, members of immigrant communities. And in fact, once uh, tests, standardized tests uh, were introduced uh, in Ivy League admissions, uh, Jewish applicants did very, very well. And many uh, alumni uh, and officials of these institutions uh, wanted to put the brakes on the number of Jews who were admitted. And this actually led to the policy that is now taken for granted, which is evaluating the whole candidate, yeah. not only the test scores, but extracurricular activities and public service and internships and so on. Clubability. Well, that, that too. So there, but it's important, uh, it's, it's important to notice that one of the conditions of the success of that generation of Jewish students, including mine, was having attended excellent public schools because most of the Jewish uh, uh, students who were admitted to top universities had excelled in very good public schools. Now, that was sort of in the background, those public schools. And if we look at the condition of American public schools today, we know that they are, they vary enormously in their funding and in their quality and in their ability to prepare young people to compete for uh, admission to colleges and universities. So one lesson we can draw from that experience, Brett, is that we need to do something about the, the unequal condition and the parlous condition of many American public schools. And now that isn't the obvious lesson. I mean, one way, and you, you yourself said it might be tinged with nostalgia is to simply say meritocracy used to work. We should double down on meritocracy. But one important step for a fair society, a decent society, as well as for the meritocratic success of that generation was uh, the ability to go, even for people of modest backgrounds who lived in modest neighborhoods, to go to truly excellent public schools. So, but this still, uh, that, that's, a, that, that's a fair point. Um, public schools should be better. They should be better for, uh, uh, for uh, everyone. Um, uh, but the, I guess the question that I'm, 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 I'm getting at is, um, for one reason or another, Jews succeeded, and it wasn't just in public schools. It was also then at Harvard, and then at Harvard Law School, and then at the the law firms. At, you know, the, the the ideal of of merit as the an intellectual merit as the kind of premier criterion for uh, success and advancement in society. You know, sort of 
moved forward throughout their careers and created um, uh, an elite in society which was uh, uh, disproportionately uh, not, not well disproportionately Jewish in some uh, in, in 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 by many metrics. So um, if we want to create uh, uh, if we want to devalue the concept of merit along uh, well I don't know if I guess this is a question I have are we looking to devalue the concept of merit or are we looking to elevate other values in society alongside the concept of, of merit that have been devalued in the last uh, 40 or 50 years. I guess the, the nub of my question though is um, in a society where status and intellectual merit are uh, delinked, or less tightly linked. What does that mean, if anything, for Jewish life in the United States? How does it alter the character of it? Maybe it doesn't alter it at all, or maybe it alters it fundamentally. I guess that's what I'm I'm, I'm trying to get at here. I I don't think it it need alter the character of Jewish life. Um, and let me see if I can explain why. The principle. Uh, it's important to sort out the various meanings of merit. What are we referring to when we speak about merit? One practical meaning of merit is admitting students or hiring employees who are well qualified for the role. People who will, students who will perform well and benefit from the education, employees who will perform the job well. And I'm no critic of merit understood in this purely practical sense. If I need surgery, I want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it. That's merit in a way. But there is a strong, when we speak of merit as a value, we're actually making a stronger claim. We're saying that in so far as chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings those with the greatest, those who display the greatest effort and talent have displayed uh, a virtue that has a moral claim that is deserving of reward. And it's that stronger sense of merit as deservingness that I think we need to reconsider. Now, here's how this would bear on the question I think that concerns you, Brett. If we're talking about the, the principle of equality of opportunity, giving everyone a truly equal chance to exercise their talents, then um, I certainly am not challenging the idea of equality of opportunity and we fall short of it and we should try to perfect it. No one should be held back by poverty or prejudice. But it's important to recognize that equality of opportunity is a remedial ideal. It's not a sufficient condition for a just society, certainly not for a good society. And so what would be, what's missing? What equality of opportunity leaves out are the conditions that make for a common life, for a shared civic life, which is why the dark side of meritocracy understood as a principle of deservingness, the dark side of meritocracy is that it's corrosive of the common good. So is, it, is the answer, go ahead. Um, well, well, the I, reason, I, I just to, to explain in a sentence or two why it's corrosive of the common good, it teaches the, those who land on top, that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that they therefore deserve the full bounty that the market bestows upon them. And by implication, that those left behind, those who struggle, must deserve their fate too. And it's this uh, feature of merit, it's the attitudes towards success that a meritocracy 
uh, cultivates that leads to hubris among the winners and to humiliation and resentment among those left behind. And this, this is precisely the condition that has led, I think, to the polarization that we witness uh, today. One of the most potent sources of the populist backlash against elites was the sense among many working people without a college education that elites looked down on them. So this is where this connects with the earlier part of our discussion where we were discussing the, the prestige economy and my suggestion that we need to challenge and rethink it. And there are various ways in which that can be challenged. One of them you seem to you seem to be to be suggesting is that the elites need to recapture something of, uh, and again, I, I may be engaging in a little bit of the of romance with the past, but something like the concepts of noblesse oblige and um, uh, the common good. Um, uh, for some reason, I always think of George H.W. Bush as the paradigmatic uh, figure of, of this kind of meritocracy that always felt a keen sense of uh, public obligation um, and, and, and giving back and fair play. That sounds like one, one thing you're suggesting, which is the moral education of elites that arguably, actually maybe inarguably has been missing for the past uh, several decades. The other side, and I guess this is my question, is whether the answer to the um, insufficiency of equality of opportunity is, um, uh, is what now goes by the name of equity and is becoming uh, an important source of conversation and debate uh, everywhere. Is that, is that correct? Well, that's not what I have in mind, though you're right that many people draw the, this contrast between equality of opportunity and equity. That's not the contrast I have in mind. Uh, let me first speak to your point about the moral education of elites. Part of what I am saying is that we need to educate uh, the successful that uh, in an appreciation of the role of uh, however hard they may have worked uh, to, to remember rather than to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way, to forget their indebtedness uh, to, to family, to community, to country, to the times in which they live, the indebtedness that made their achievements possible, and a greater appreciation of the role of, of luck in life and of one's indebtedness can prompt a certain humility, the ability to look at those who struggle and say there, but for the accident of birth or the grace of God or the mystery of fate, go I, that could be me. And so from this humility, this sense of humility can come a, a greater willingness to accept uh, one's obligations to the common good. So that's to, that's to agree with the, your point about the moral education of elites. As for, the con as for the alternative to equality of opportunity, and I say alternative not because I'm against equality of opportunity, I'm in favor of it, but consider it, um, I consider it necessary, but not sufficient for, for a just society or a good society. The further dimension of equality that's required in my view, I would describe as a broad democratic equality of condition. Democracy and a healthy civic life do not require perfect equality, but they do require that there, uh, that there be public places and common spaces that gather people together in the course of their everyday lives so that they encounter one another across classes and across differences of, of race and ethnicity and of religion and of political conviction. And it's this equality of condition that has been deeply undermined by the, uh, the inequality 
inequalities of income and wealth that have unfolded over the past four decades. Those who are affluent and those who are of modest means increasingly have come to live separate lives. We, we send our children to different schools. We live and work and shop and play in different places. We follow different, um, you know, different news feeds and, and social media opinions. So, so a broad democratic equality of condition would seek to rebuild the civic infrastructure of a shared common life. And that's the sense in which equality of opportunity by itself is not enough. So it sounds from a prescriptive point of view that you would at least entertain the idea of a civilian conservation corps, national service, um, bringing back the draft even maybe for uh, six months to, uh, to uh, a year, short, short, short terms of service, uh, more redistributive um, tax policies. What about on the educational uh, front? Um, is it possible to bring some of these ideas to bear on um, the way universities conduct themselves? I, I read Ron Daniels's book, uh, uh, the president of Johns uh, Hopkins University's uh, book on, on how universities serve democracy. And one of the cases he makes very powerfully is the case against legacy, uh, against legacy uh, admissions. Uh, I see you nodding your head, so I suspect you favor that. What else could an institution like yours uh, do um, uh, on, on, to advance the, the aim you're describing? I, I agree with uh, the uh, abolition of legacy admissions. I think that would be um, a, a valuable step to take. But I, I think more broadly in the, in the curriculum, uh, we need to reorient higher education away from an emphasis. And here I'm thinking especially of the, of the social sciences away from technocratic um, uh, orientations to um, human and social inquiry uh, to a greater emphasis on um, moral and ethical reasoning and civic education. We need to cultivate um, among young people the capacity to reason together about uh, big ethical questions that matter for civic life, the meaning of justice, how to contend with inequality, uh, what should be the role of money in markets in a good society, uh, how should we think through the ethical implications of new technologies, what do we owe one another as fellow citizens. These are questions that touch on ancient philosophical debates to which students should be exposed, but they should, uh, we need to educate students in the art of democratic public discourse, including the art of listening, listening in the sense of attending to not just hearing what someone else is saying, but attending to the moral convictions that underlie the uh, underlie many of our disagreements. And I don't think we're doing a good enough job of that. And I, I think that the technocratic turn of the social sciences in particular um, to considerations of efficiency and to a conception of economics as supposedly value-free or value-neutral, concerned only with efficiency matters. I think this is a damaging uh, distortion of what civic education should be. And, and to my ears, that sounds like bring back the common core. Is that what you're, you're describing? Well, a version of the common core that does not simply, I, I, I think it's important that all students be exposed to the great works of philosophy and literature. Um, but I think it's important that they also uh, be challenged to relate the conceptions of justice and civic virtue and the common good debated by, articulated by philosophers of the past to contemporary issues that raise philosophical questions. It, it, listening to you, it sounds like you are making two arguments. 
Um, uh, one is about the idea of common citizenship. And then earlier, an idea about the realities of class that are um, increasingly in tension with some of the shibboleths of the progressive left today, um, which are focused on identity, um, uh, ethnic and racial, gender and so on identities over the questions of uh, common, common citizenship and are focused on questions of race ahead of, ahead of class. Do you, is that, am I, am I capturing something in, in, in there in that, do you feel that today's contemporary left um, is out of step with uh, the, the needs that you're describing for a more, uh, a fairer, uh, a more equitable uh, society? Well, I'm critical of both the mainstream uh, left and right. Um, in, in somewhat different ways, I suppose. I'm critical of a premise that they often share, mainstream left and right in American politics, which was the embrace of the neoliberal version of finance-driven globalization uh, that uh, both parties embraced over the past four decades uh, that hollowed out the terms of public discourse that uh, converted our most important public questions into technocratic questions that disempowered ordinary citizens. And that when connected to the meritocratic, as you've called it, prestige economy, uh, left large portions of uh, working the working class feeling disempowered, dishonored, disrespected. Um, as for identity politics, um, the, I think that uh, addressing um, racial and gender inequalities and injustices um, is important and should be central to politics. Um, but I also think that confronting um, uh, injustices of race and gender uh, is should not uh, prevent us from addressing questions of class inequalities and the uh, inequalities of esteem that we've been discussing. So I would hope to um, supplement a focus on racial uh, and gender inequalities with a, a critique of the structural sources of inequality that have uh, left large portions of our fellow citizens of feeling excluded, not only uh, left at an economic disadvantage, having been excluded from the gains of uh, economic growth during the age of globalization, but also feeling excluded from the public culture. And, and that's, that, was, that brings me to my next question, which is that listening to you and reading you, there's a, there's a through line here that expresses a, a not so tacit um, sense of sympathy or, or understanding. I won't say for Donald Trump, but for many of the people who voted for him, along with the people who sort of turned away from the Democratic Party and veered toward populism sometime in the neck in the last uh, in the last 10 years, that their concerns are in some ways also yours, obviously very differently, uh, um, not just expressed, but you know, widely different in their conclusions, but at least the the animating sources of their their anger and their displeasure and their alarm. Um, are, are ones that you, you understand. I, to be clear, I have no sympathy for Donald Trump whatsoever. I, I think he's, he's a pernicious figure, but I do have, but I do think it's important to understand the legitimate grievances 
to which he successfully appealed. And I think the, uh, that the Democratic Party and progressive politics generally uh, would make a grave mistake um, to um, ignore or to, to fail to take seriously the legitimate grievances, the anger, the resentment, the sense of humiliation and disempowerment that, that um, many uh, working class American voters feel. Now, I'm not suggesting that there were not uh, uh, racist and misogynist um, uh, motivations for some of Trump's voters. But I think the Democratic Party makes a mistake if it fails to engage in critical self-examination about how policies it endorsed uh, over the past four decades, including the outsourcing of jobs to low-wage countries, including the deregulation of the financial industry, including uh, embracing a, a bailout of Wall Street that left ordinary uh, homeowners and middle-class Americans defend for themselves. The Democratic Party, with, uh, along with mainstream Republican uh, Party, uh, perpetrated the policies that led to the anger and resentment uh, and legitimate grievances that certainly contributed to, um, to Trump's success. Uh, facing up to those uh, grievances, uh, diagnosing the source of that resentment beyond its, um, its racist and xenophobic aspects um, is difficult because it requires uh, the mainstream parties, Democrats and uh, mainstream Democrats and mainstream Republicans to recognize and acknowledge their own policy failures of a kind that paved the way to Trump. Look at your students today. You've been teaching now for a very long time. Um, and comparing them to the students you first encountered uh, a few decades uh, ago, do you feel more or less hopeful that those students will be able to thoughtfully confront the kind of challenges that you are describing? Do you see that they have drifted almost hopelessly towards a kind of careerism and uh, self-centeredness, or do you see a more idealistic character to your students uh, and, a, and a greater willingness to engage in some of the self-reflection that you've described for the last, for the last hour? It's a difficult question. I don't think the problem among students um, in, uh, uh, in the students I teach, I don't think the problem is that they are self-centered or that they are not concerned with the public good. In many ways, they, uh, they devote copious amounts of time to various activities of public service. Um, and that's admirable. My worry is that they have been formed, in some cases from a very young age, certainly through their adolescent years, by a, an intensely uh, competitive, high-pressure, anxiety-strewn, uh, stress-inducing meritocratic gauntlet um, that has injured them uh, in two ways. It's uh, by the time they arrive, and here we're talking about those who prevail in this, uh, in, in the meritocratic gauntlet, they, uh, they struggle with uh, emotional and mental health problems at, a, at an alarming level. And this is true of college students, college age students generally in the United States, uh, in part because so much is at stake and they are taught from an early age that it's all they're doing, whether they succeed or fail in winning admission. It's all due to their own effort and hard work. So quite apart from 
the misdirected moral education that that lesson teaches, it's damaging to their emotional and, and psychological well-being. That worries me. It also makes it difficult to believe anything but, and let me put that another way, it also makes it very uh, tempting to believe that they have won admission and they have succeeded academically thanks to their own effort. It's their own doing. And this makes it very, the habit of hoop jumping becomes very hard to break because no sooner do they win admission then instead of stepping back and taking a deep breath and exploring what's worth caring about and why, what path will be the fullest expression of their dreams, potential and aspirations, they're almost bound to ask what's next? What's the next hoop that I must jump through? And so it isn't self-centeredness exactly because among the multitude of activities are many public spirited uh, activities and, and charitable activities and so on. It's that their attitude toward success and, and to their place in the world is distorted by the gauntlet that they have been forced to endure. It, it leads them to view their education very often too instrumentally in careerist terms and to give them too little freedom to explore and to reflect critically on what they believe and why. Final question, because you began by telling us about um, snippets of your Jewish education as a, as a boy. And it sounds to me like that might offer some useful counter-programming to the students that you just uh, described? Well, part of what... I'm thinking of... Uh, go ahead. Ecclesiastes, I guess. Okay, all right. Well, say more. Brett. Well, uh, what, what's the line? The, the race is not to the swift. Right, right. Uh, but but time and chance, right? Right, and and um, yes, I I think that um, I think that Jewish education at its best can prompt a spirit of inquiry, uh, of of critical inquiry, and also a spirit of humility. Um, and also an appreciation of uh, the possibility that there are, that we are not as human persons, self-made and self-sufficient, despite what a market-driven meritocratic culture teaches us. Um, so much of uh, the weight of our public culture, especially among the privileged uh, ranks of our society, uh, teaches that we are self-made and self-sufficient, that everything we achieve is, is our own doing. Um, and I think that studying Jewish texts and Talmudic debates and biblical stories um, can, can induce uh, a, a counter, uh, well, it can, can induce a certain humility that flows from a counter story, uh, a, a counter story that emphasizes um, not uh, that emphasizes among other uh, resources, uh, the covenantal idea, which gives us a sense of uh, community and belonging and of obligation um, that uh, 
that exceed our um, uh, that exceed our willing, our doing, um, our mastery, and our dominion uh, over the world and over our own prospects in the world. That's a beautiful place to conclude the conversation. And I, I really can't thank you enough for, for spending an hour uh, with me, with us. Um, uh, and um, I hope we can find an occasion one day to do this in person um, because this I would was love really, um, extraordinarily um, thought provoking and, and enlightening. Um, and I look forward to posting this. I will get you uh, an edited transcript within the week or so. Um, it will be vastly condensed from an hour's worth of conversation. Of course. Which probably yeah. filled 10,000 words or so. Uh, and uh, hopefully you'll be you'll be happy with 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 what you see, and we will tinker accordingly, um, and um, and hopefully return to this conversation uh, sometime in the months or years ahead. I really, really just want to thank you for doing this. My pleasure, Brett. I've really enjoyed it, and yes, by all means, let's do it again soon, uh, ideally in person. Okay, Michael, all the best and enjoy your summer. We'll, we'll be in touch. Okay, bye-bye.